The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. From my perspective, it's really a welcome addition to have a patient as well as a clinician perspective in guideline development. The patient representatives on the committee really reminded us as we did this guideline that costs were really important. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This podcast is based upon an article titled Oral Pharmacologic Treatment of Type 2 Diabetes, which appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine in February 21st of 2017. Today we have Dr. Michael J. Barry, who is the primary care internist and serves as the medical director of the John D. Stokel Center for Primary Care at the Massachusetts General Hospital. He's a professor of medicine at Harvard. He's a former president of the Foundation for Informed Medical Decision-Making and has been a president of Society of Medical Decision-Making and the Society of General Internal Medicine. He is always focused on patient outcomes and patient preferences. He joins us on this podcast as a member of the guideline committee that wrote this paper. Joining us, Michael was on this committee, and this is a very interesting committee. This guideline has been endorsed by the American Academy of Family Physicians, so we have the largest internal medicine organization, the largest family medicine organization in the United States. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about the constitution of the committee that came up with this particular paper? Surely, Bob, and good to be on with you. So the Clinical Guidelines Committee of the American College of Physicians has about 15 members. Most are internal medicine physicians. We actually relatively recently added two patient representatives, or should I say people or sometimes patients, and they're full committee members who debate the guidelines and vote. We also have a larger panel of patient representatives that serve as a sounding board. They can review drafts of guidelines, We may reach out to them to get their sense of what outcomes are most important to patients. So, and again, they can serve as a a group from which the full voting members can be recruited. And, you know, from my perspective, it's really a welcome addition to have a patient as well as a clinician perspective in guideline development. So let's put this guideline into perspective. As I said, it was an update. ACP had done a guideline in 2012, but a couple of new classes of oral medications came out for type 2 diabetes. Can you talk about how you constructed this guideline, what data you looked at? Uh, Surely. So you're absolutely right. There's been a lot of research in diabetes that is relevant to the question of what doctors and patients should do working together to uh, manage diabetes effectively. So we were looking for data related to older classes of medicines like metformin and sulfonylureas, which have been around for a long time, but also uh, newer agents, uh, the thiazolidinediones, the dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors, 
DPP4 inhibitors and the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 or SGLT2 inhibitors. And we were really interested in the question of how these different agents would perform in terms of impacting various outcomes that are important to people with diabetes. And basically stepping back, diabetes can cause complications that can make people's lives miserable and, and could even kill them. Those could be classified as what we tend to call macrovascular complications, diseases of big arteries, things like heart attacks and stroke, but also diabetes can cause microvascular complications, things like neuropathy and kidney complications, nephropathy. And all those things can contribute to diminutions in people's quantity and quality of life. So what you'd really want to do is look at the impact of these medicines on those outcomes. As I'll mention in a minute, there's unfortunately precious little data on the impact of these medicines on those outcomes. And instead, we tend to see more research focusing on what we call intermediate outcomes, things like the hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of the cruising altitude of the blood sugar. And there's some relationship of those intermediate outcomes to the longer-term outcomes, probably more closely related for the microvascular than the macrovascular complications. We can't forget in diabetes that some of the most important things to do are to control other macrovascular risk factors like hypertension and hypercholesterolemia. We don't want to get lost in the blood sugar. But what we did was we worked with a evidence-based practice center at Johns Hopkins to review the studies that have been done looking at these medications and their effect on complications. Now, we were interested in practical head-to-head complications. We wanted to basically answer the questions for clinicians and their patients what's the reasonable first drug to pick if you decide you need to bring a drug treatment on board to help a person with diabetes? And if that's not enough to control their blood sugar, what's the second drug you should consider adding? And the Johns Hopkins people worked very hard. They wrote a long report. It was an evidence update from the last guideline through the end of calendar 2015. And it was the evidence on those studies that we used to build the guideline. That's great. Just in case everybody listening doesn't remember some of the names of the classes, uh, the dipeptidase, dipeptidyl, peptidase 4s are the glyptins, I believe. Is that correct? Correct. Citagliptin, saxagliptin, and linagliptin. And the SGLT2s are the Glofloxins like empagliflozin and canagliflozin and uh, dapagliflozin. Right. So, and we're seeing a lot of ads on TV for these, so we'll have to comment on those. Well, it looks like the recommendation number one is a very, very strong one. The evidence is moderately good, but I don't hear much disagreement about that one, and that is metformin is the first line drug. That's correct. And that really strengthens with new evidence the previous recommendation from 2012 that for the great majority of patients, metformin is a really good first choice. It works as well or in some cases better than the other alternatives as the first drug in terms of lowering hemoglobin A1c. It has a favorable effect on weight. It tends not to cause complications such as hypoglycemia 
And so both for its beneficial effects and reduced side effects, it continues to be, we think, the best first choice. There are some exceptions. People with fairly advanced chronic kidney disease may not be safely treated with metformin, but the FDA has recently relax some of the restrictions suggesting that it would be people with estimated glomerular filtration rates or EGFRs less than 30 shouldn't get metformin. Previously, the cut points had been kind of more restricted and that for people with EGFRs between 30 and 45, they generally wouldn't recommend new starts, albeit people drifting down into that range, if watched very carefully, might reasonably be treated. But again, that tends to be the exception, and most people would be candidates for a metformin first strategy. I should also add it's uh, quite inexpensive, and that's why you don't see TV ads for it. So the recommendation two is sort of soft. It's a weak recommendation. The quality of evidence is pretty good, but It really gets to what I know is close to your heart, and that's patient-centered decision-making, having a discussion with the patient about the benefits, the adverse effects, and the costs of each class of drugs. Was there much debate about this? How did the patients weigh in on this? Sure. Well, this really was, as you're indicating, an area of quite a bit of discussion on the committee. And this, again, gets to the very practical question of, you know, so you've got a patient on metformin and you feel that to improve their outcomes, you'd like to get that hemoglobin A1C down a little bit lower. And what's the best second drug to choose? And it might have been that in reviewing the evidence, we might have found a clear winner, sort of like metformin is the first choice, but that really wasn't the case. These drugs all worked pretty well as a second agent, not surprisingly adding a second drug to metformin, get your A1C down about another half a percentage point in absolute terms. So if you will, say an 8% hemoglobin A1C to around 7.5%, but all uh, do so pretty readily. Now, here's where we were hoping we would get good direct evidence of the impact of different combinations of these drugs with metformin, comparing head-to-head one combination versus another on the outcomes like macrovascular complications, heart attack, stroke, microvascular complications, the neuropathies, the nephropathies, etc. And really across the board, the strength of evidence was really low for those direct outcomes, highlighting, I think, a research need that we called out for more research on the direct outcomes that are important to patients. As we move to the intermediate outcomes, I've, I've talked about the hemoglobin A1C effect. There are different side effects to these different combinations. Uh, sulfonylureas, for example, which have been around for a long time, are more likely to cause hypoglycemia, but the SGLT2 inhibitors can cause uh, genital fungal infections. The DPP four inhibitors can sometimes be related to heart failure. So each of these drugs have their own potential side effects. And I should mention metformin can cause GI upset sometimes. So often we think a pretty close balance of the harms and benefits of adding any of these medicines to metformin as a second drug. And it's really reasonable to have a conversation with a patient about the potential side effects 
And sometimes it's a matter of trial and error, of, of trying one, seeing how the patient tolerates it, and switching if need be. And I should really say that the patient representatives on the committee really reminded us as we did this guideline that costs were a really important consideration. I think sometimes in guideline development we feel, gosh, if we think too much about costs, patients will think we're rationing, and their reminder was, boy, we need that information to make an informed decision, as well as the information about benefits and harms. And so that was part of our consideration as we thought about this. And the price differentials between these medicines can be quite striking. Why don't we go over those? I know the patients that I take care of in the hospital oftentimes have limited resources, and the one thing they want is how can they get their medications for the least amount of money. They're a little less concerned about what all the side effects are and what the potential benefits are if the differential is a hundred times as it is in some of these drugs. So going over the four classes, how would you rank them in terms of cost and perhaps a rough idea and I might be able to help you because I did look up some costs right before we started recording this podcast. Well, you could be a check on me. So I would say if we look at the medicines that have been around for a while, metformin or the sulfonylureas, those drugs are available generically and a two-month supply, a 60-day supply, might cost 10 or $15. Of the thiazolidine diones, they cost more but at least one of them is available generically and you know might cost $30 for a 60-day supply. As so, we get up into the so, so far you're getting an A. That's exactly what I found. Now we're getting to the two new ones that we see on television all the time. And my thought is, if I see an ad on television, that must cost a whole lot more money. Well, uh, let's see if we can prove your hypothesis. So if we get to the DPP-4 inhibitors, they might cost $400 for a two-month supply, and the SGLT2 inhibitors might get up to $800. Boy, for my patients, that's real money. Now, of course, depending on insurance coverage, people may pay different out-of-pocket costs, but of course, it's costing someone money. And again, I think patients think that's really quite an important difference. And I'll emphasize that it's not just the effect of the cost, we know that cost of medicine can be a real inhibitor for adherence with medicine. And of course, an expensive medicine not taken is a waste altogether. So I looked at GoodRx, which is a pretty nice site to look at drug prices. And actually, according to what I read, the DPP-4s are in the low 400s and the SGLT-2s we're in the mid-400s if you had a coupon in the mid-500s if you didn't have a coupon. You had to do some shopping around to get those prices. But that still, as I suggested, is like 50 times as expensive per month. Per month. This is not a two-month supply. so maybe uh, I was doing two-month supply, so it sounds like we're pretty lined up. Yeah. The other disconcerting thing is on GoodRx, you could actually see what the price has done over the last four years, and it's a really linear rising curve. The SGLT2s have gone from like 250 to 450 over that time, something in that range. Mm -hmm. uh, so they don't seem to be coming down just yet. 
I did see that the DPP-4, one of them is likely to become generic in 2022. No such information on SGLT2s. Well, food for thought as we talk to our patients. I've, and I, I must say, I've had my share of patients who've been reluctant to tell me that their medicines are just too expensive. So having that discussion up front as you're choosing that second medicine is probably a good idea. Yeah, so I think that's a really important point. And when we talked about this ahead of time, I found it fascinating that the patients on the guideline committee were much more willing than the physicians to emphasize cost. We sometimes get scared about talking about cost for exactly the reasons that you mentioned. They're going to say, well, you're just, you're rationing and you're not giving me the best drug. I love the way you said it. A good drug is better than a great drug not taken. Agreed. And so when price is an object, we do have the sulfonylurea still. We have to understand that there's a bigger risk for hypoglycemia, as you said. When cost is no object, you might consider the SGLT2s. There's some certain advantages to them, but you have to understand that you're going to get those fungal genital infections, and you can even get normoglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. That keeps on getting reported periodically with SGLT2s, and that is a very significant side effect. But the SGLT2s rarely cause hypoglycemia because of their mechanism. And they and metformin are also associated with weight loss, which may be salutary for people with uh, right. diabetes. They're working on that right. as well. I should say that really since our review was published in our guideline, there's been a lot of interesting research looking at cardiovascular effects of medications like the SGLT2 inhibitors. There are studies that were placebo-controlled, so they actually wouldn't have been in our literature review, which sought head-to-head comparisons of these different combinations. And hopefully, we'll begin to see those as well with these newer drugs powered on the ability to show real effects on macrovascular complications like strokes and heart attack. The challenge is there's a strong incentive for pharmaceutical companies to do the studies with the newer expensive drugs. Who does those studies with sulfonylureas or metformin? Maybe that's a role for the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute or PCORI. So I think there's been a great review. Why don't you give your two, three, four cents summary of what you think our listeners should focus on from this paper? Well, I would say first, metformin first for the great majority of people, a nice combination of benefit, at least in terms of hemoglobin A1C reduction, salutary effects on weight, low risk of hypoglycemia, and making it quite cost effective. And again, the real question is what to add second, and we think that uh, an agent from any of these other four classes would be reasonable, and it's a good time to have a conversation with the patient about the goals of adding a second drug, what the potential side effects would be, and what their feelings about that would be, and not forget the cost. Right, and I'm going to second what you had to say, that anytime we're taking care of someone with diabetes who's probably on medications for their cholesterol, they almost certainly should be on a statin, and they often have hypertension, so we're talking about quite a few medications that discussing cost and their ability to take this many medications has to come into play. 
I'll only finish in saying this is what we know in 2018. As time goes on, as costs change, as things become generic, we may reshuffle the priority on these drugs. This is what we know as of right now. So, Mike, thank you so much for helping us flesh out this paper. I hope this has been valuable to the listeners, and I think it's been a very wonderful discussion. My pleasure, Bob. So it's time for Bob's Pearls. Just to repeat what Mike shared with us. In most situations, metformin is the number one drug for type 2 diabetes. Given that the patient is not controlled sufficiently on metformin, then we have to have conversations with our patients because there's no good comparative data that states which of the other potential classes of oral hypoglycemics would be best. Patients tell us that we must include cost in these discussions because that is very important in allowing patients to adhere to the management. So one drug may have a better side effect profile, but because it costs 100 times as much, it may not be suitable for your individual patient. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Thanks for listening. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.